Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards, and today I'm speaking with Jana Lipman about her new book, In Camps, Vietnamese Refugees, Asylum Seekers and Repatriates, published by the University of California Press earlier this year. Jana is a scholar of US foreign relations, US immigration and labor history. Her research spans geographies covering the globe while investigating the local histories of diplomatic politics. At present, Jana is an Associate Professor of History at the University of Tulane in New Orleans. I'm very excited to have Jana on the show today to discuss her new book, which I must say I found very gripping. Jana, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. Thanks for being here. Now, just to get us started, can you tell us how you came to write In Camps, Vietnamese Refugees, Asylum Seekers and Repatriates? Sure, of course. Um, In some ways, there's sort of two different origin stories of this book. Um, The first, which is personal, and I mean, I don't know if it's embarrassing or not, but it makes me sound very old. Um, But I studied in Vietnam when I was an undergraduate in college, so in 1994. And there's a way that I like to begin with that because it really drew me into the country. I'd never um, left my hometown really in Massachusetts before going to Vietnam. I was 19 years old. Um, It was a really life-changing experience for me. I studied Vietnamese. I was issued a bicycle. Um, I rode my bike around Ho Chi Minh City or Saigon. And it really made me think more deeply about histories of the U.S. war in Vietnam and the legacies of U.S. imperialism. And in some ways, that really shaped my intellectual trajectory over the last several decades. Um, So that's, I guess, the first story, which is fairly personal and, again, from a long time ago. But it is why I became interested in Vietnamese-American studies. Um, The second, which is somewhat more academic, is that I had just finished a book on the naval base in Guantanamo Bay. um, And I had finished it. It was done. I didn't know what I wanted to do next. I'd always had in the back of my head, I want to do a project on Vietnam and Vietnamese Americans. And I was like, well, I've been studying military bases. Um, Maybe I should keep doing that. 
And I found out doing some preliminary research that several military bases have been used as refugee camps, um, particularly after the Vietnam War. I was like, huh, why were military bases used as refugee camps? And that brought me to learn about how Vietnamese were brought to Guam in 1975. And I began finding just remarkable images and documents about the Vietnamese on Guam. And I said, this is a really good story and I want to know more. Now, that's really interesting. One of the things you talk a lot about in the book is what happened in Guam. Um, so just I, I do want to touch on that and I, I really want to hear more of you know what happened there. Just to contextualize it, though, can you talk a little bit about where the refugees were coming from? Um, you know, who were the, the difference between the refugees and asylum seekers um, and repatriates that were fleeing? And why were they fleeing? And how did they end up as a start in Guam? Now, that's a really good question. And just so if people have some larger context. Um, the U.S. had been involved in Vietnam um, throughout the mid-20th century. And in April of 1975, the North Vietnamese finally succeeded um, in reunifying the country and they declare victory. And so people in South Vietnam who had been allied with the United States um, left in large numbers um, the end of April of 1975. And in some ways, that's where my story begins. And that's, I think, what most people think about when they think about Vietnamese refugees. They think about sort of the helicopters flying off the rooftops of April 30th, 1975. And that's definitely part of the story. Um, but part of the goals of the book, along with telling that story, um, is to recognize that Vietnamese came between 1975 all the way until the 1990s. And most people, I think, don't understand that there are different sort of groups of Vietnamese. There's some that come in 75 right after the end of the war. There are others who come in the late 1970s. That's largely because at that point, the Vietnamese government was cracking down more on private business. There are also re-education camps throughout the country for those who had worked with the South Vietnamese who are then so, you know, basically politically oppressed. Um, the North Vietnamese had seen them as traitors and put them in re-education camps. And when they were released, many also flee. And then in the 1980s, people again continue to leave for a combination of political reasons um, and sometimes economic reasons as well. That's interesting. And that was one thing that really struck me in the book. I, I am one of those people who just had these images of, you know, war ending in 1975. Um, so it is interesting to hear you talk about, you know, this, this kind of... Uh, migration um, that went on for quite some period of time. Um, now, taking this into account, can you describe the difference between refugees and asylum seekers if there was one over both in 1975 and over this period? That's a really good question. So one thing is I choose in the book to not refer to the Vietnamese as refugees um, as sort of a blanket category throughout the book. And that's not because I don't think they were refugees, but because their legal status changes a lot. And I didn't want to, as the author, be in the position of deciding when does someone get to be a refugee and when are they not a refugee? It makes a huge difference uh, whether or not they could resettle or not. Um, but legally speaking, 
Um, the Vietnamese in 1975 actually were not categorized as refugees in the United States. They were categorized as parolees. No one ever calls them this, but um, people call them refugees. They call themselves refugees, but they were in this sort of more um, nebulous category of parolee when they first were admitted. Um, and then in the 1970s, um, the UNHCR and countries in Southeast Asia and the United States and other European countries um, basically come to an agreement and say that anyone from Vietnam who ends up in a first asylum site will get refugee status and be able to be resettled. And then in 1988 and 1989, that changes. And at that point, these countries will say, no, they're not all refugees. We're going to interview them and they are only going to be asylum seekers. And if we think that they're refugees, i.e. they're fleeing political persecution in a way that we understand it, then they'll get to be refugees and resettled. But if we think they've just left for economic reasons, or if we think their political reasons aren't reasons we think really matter, maybe they're from North Vietnam and they had a fight with a local communist official in North Vietnam, but they never fought with South Vietnam, then we are gonna say they're not refugees and we're gonna send them back to Vietnam. And so the Vietnamese, for the most part, always claim that they're refugees, that they are asylum seekers, that they were facing political persecution. But over time, um, both the host countries and the UNHCR and the United States and the UK will slowly close that window and say, we don't actually think you're refugees anymore. Um, you're just illegal immigrants. And like illegal immigrants everywhere, we're going to send you back to Vietnam. And that was one of the really interesting things that struck me in the book, um, the power of language and how it came to, I think you could say, um, delineate people's status as, so, for example, an asylum seeker or a refugee. Um, but also taking that into account, it was really interesting who was making the decisions um, in different you know, political context, depending on where the refugees were. Um, can you, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about this language. So for example, at one stage in the book, you talk about the difference between human rights and humanitarianism and how this, you know, how this impacted what happened to the refugees or asylum seekers. No, that's exactly right. Um, and so what happens in the late 80s is that the Vietnamese no longer get this sort of blanket refugee status, um, which people should know is fairly unique. And it's largely due to the Cold War and the United States' sense of obligation to the Vietnamese at the end of the war. Um, but so people who were doing the interviewing um, were like Hong Kong immigration officials, Philippine immigration officials. They were often trained um, by the UNHCR. The UNHCR is very much involved with this, but the interviewing was generally done by the host site. Um, these interviews, there could often be multiple layers of translation. Um, this was something that the Vietnamese challenged in court, that they should be able to get better translation in these interviews. Um, but the problem was is that most of the interviewers were looking for a set story. And my colleague, Yin Lee Espiritu and John Knudsen in Norway have written a lot about this. They were looking for a story of, my family is from South Vietnam. I served with the South Vietnamese military. I was you know, persecuted by the North Vietnamese. Therefore, I'm a refugee. And that story was true for many people, but there are other people who had more complicated stories. Um, and so, for example, I was, remember one story I found of a man from northern Vietnam 
went to go work in East um, Eastern Europe as part of sort of socialist networks. And he gets to, I think it was East Germany, and he joins a union and it's an independent union and it's going against the government. And so he gets deported back to Vietnam and then he gets in trouble with the North Vietnamese and Northern Vietnam again and he flees to Hong Kong. And he has difficulty making his case because it's not what's expected. Um, and I think that those stories of having to prove that you're facing persecution are always a matter of storytelling. And so the immigration officers always were skeptical. They didn't think that the people were telling them the quote truth. While the Vietnamese often felt like, well, if we tell you the quote truth, you're not gonna believe us. So there, you know, what are the stories we need to tell? Um, what I would say is some places were far more um, open in who they considered a refugee or not. So the numbers are inexact, but I think in the Philippines, which had the largest acceptance of something like 30%, maybe even slightly higher of the Vietnamese through this process were given refugee or asylum status. Hong Kong was much lower. It was under 10%. Um, so I'm wondering, let's talk about this um, screening mechanism a bit, just picking up on your point just now. Um, and in the context of Hong Kong, because there was this UNHCR screening mechanism developed as this sort of um, point of, you know, that uh, Vietnamese who could no longer just claim to be refugee status. I'm, re I'm really interested in this because there is now in Hong Kong in the last few years that was introduced a universal screening mechanism and it does seem to hark back to the UNHCR screening mechanism from 1980 to 1989 um, under the Hong Kong policy you describe as deterrence, detention and repatriation. Can you talk about um, begin talking a bit more about Hong Kong and the screening mechanism. Yeah, no, of course. And I think that this really does resonate a lot today. You know, I'm based in the United States and we have asylum seekers coming from Central America and our policies have gotten more and more harsh in terms of who is accepted and who is not. And I think that these stories from the 80s really provide that framework for um, deterring asylum seekers. Um, but specifically about Hong Kong, Hong Kong was in, a, in an unusual situation. Hong Kong, um, British colony in the 1980s, um, and yet knew it was going to be coming part of China in 1997. So there was a lot of changes going on in Hong Kong. And Hong Kong also had this complication because people coming from China, also a communist country, were not considered to be refugees. So if you were coming from China, you were um, immediately deported if they caught you. And it's, it's slightly more complicated, but by 1980, that's more or less the policy. And so people in Hong Kong were often really frustrated. Why could Vietnamese get refugee status, but people coming across from China, often people's relatives or friends, were deported? And so there's sort of ongoing sort of frustration in Hong Kong because of this. Um, and so in the 80s, the Hong Kong government decides to change its policy and they want to stop the Vietnamese from coming in. So they start by putting Vietnamese in what are essentially detention camps so that it is less attractive for Vietnamese to show up. How can we deter people? Well, we'll put them in detention. Previously, Vietnamese had been in open camps and able to work in Hong Kong. After 1982, they're essentially put in detention camps. Um, but Hong Kong was still saying, look, we'll take everyone. We're not going to send people back to sea, but they're going to be in these camps. But people kept coming. 
And so it's at this point they decide they're going to start the screening process. And so at first the UNHCR is really opposed to this. There's huge debates within the UNHCR about this because it's seen as um, in some ways antithetical. You know, people in the UNHCR have been protecting refugees. What does it mean that we're going to now start sending people back? Um, but sort of within about an 18-month period, the UNHCR um, does a 180-degree shift and it says, actually, you know, the Hong Kong government is onto something. We're not going to keep taking Vietnamese as sort of de facto refugees indefinitely. This asylum-seeking process has some merit, and it might, in fact, end um, the number of Vietnamese in these camps. And so there's actually sort of, in the end, there's a lot of legal cases that create this. But Vietnamese in Hong Kong will first be interviewed by Hong Kong immigration officers. If they're denied, they can appeal to a Hong Kong sort of immigration board. And then they can even appeal one more time to a UNHCR board, which is separate. Um, and if they, you know, go through that process and they're considered not to be refugees, after 1989, they would be repatriated. And those numbers of repatriations go up starting in the 1990s. Um, and that was, you, you mentioned that there was probably only around 10% of refugees that were uh, assessed as being refugees in Hong Kong. Um, I mean, it seems really low. And then... You also just mentioned that it was a situation of um, detention as well and, you know, this idea of determin de deterrence. Can you talk more about the conditions in the camps in Hong Kong? This was this something I didn't know at all about, um, notwithstanding I've been here for a while. It's, it's really interesting. This was a really interesting part of the book. Thank you so much. No, I mean, the camps, um, the, the conditions were pretty grim. Um, what I would say is that the Hong Kong government, the, the goal was to um, convince people not to come. That, in fact, was the goal of the Hong Kong government. They were trying to deter people from coming. Um, I should say that Hong Kong um, is not alone in this, so I'm going to be critical of Hong Kong for a moment, but you should know the camps in Malaysia also had fairly grim situations, um, as did camps throughout the rest of Southeast Asia. And Hong Kong, again, sort of prided itself as a British colony of never pushing anyone away, which other Southeast Asian countries sometimes did. But if you got to Hong Kong after 1982, which is when the detention camp started, um, you were basically in an enclosed space indefinitely um, until you were resettled. Um, and these were sometimes on islands within sort of the Hong Kong archipelago. Sometimes they were in actual former prisons. Other times they were, um, it, it was sort of more within the city itself. Um, and people weren't allowed to come and go. And so you were sort of really trapped in this very confined space. They were often overcrowded. They would be guarded by the correctional officers in Hong Kong. And they were very punitive. Um, and people were very desperate in these camps. Um, there was a great deal of boredom, frustration. Um, the conditions were very minimal. They were extremely crowded. And, and life there was very grim. I remember when I was in Hong Kong, I visited one of them. And one of the things that really moved me or struck me, um, one of the camps that I went to, um, you could actually almost sort of see the water from the camp. And um, it was on Lantau Island. 
And just the idea of being sort of trapped um, inside and being able to see the water and not being able to say, go to the beach, um, to me, just this sort of came to mind like the psychological duress of that. It, honestly, it just sounds awful because Landau is really beautiful and the beaches are beautiful. I just, it would just be so psychologically, I think, damaging. Um, I these can, oh, sorry, yeah. you go on. Sorry, you go on. That that's true. It was very psychologically damaging. And you should know that these were also families, um, children were in these camps. Um, it was slightly different from a prison and that, you know, family groups were often kept together. People weren't in individual cells per se. Um, but you sh people should know that this included families, children, teenagers. Um, and so it was a very grim existence. Yeah. I mean, you've got a few photographs in the book and it is just, it's quite shocking seeing these children behind, you know, barbed wire fences. It's not what you imagine um, went on or, or should go on, really. Mm -hmm. um, but this, all of this took place in quite a complex political situation, especially leading into the 1997 handover from British colonial rule back to um, the Chinese government. Um, and then there was, you know, with the introduction of the Basic Law in 1997, you know, there was the UK and London's need to preserve this veneer of humanitarian humanitarianism. Um, and there was this sort of tension of who would settle the problem. Would it be settled of, oh, sorry, the problem of Vietnamese people arriving by boats? Was it going to be settled domestically in Hong Kong or by the UK from aboard, particularly before the handover? Can you speak more to this point, please? Yeah, no, of course. I mean, this was really the main concern in Hong Kong, obviously, in the 1990s. Um, but I would say there's a few things. One is, is that my understanding is that Hong Kong Chinese politicians really, in some ways, took the case of the Vietnamese on and they wanted to, quote, end the camps. And so all of these deterrence policies and repatriation were trying to get the camps closed before 1997. And there's a way that this was a point which the Hong Kong Chinese, most, not all, but most politicians alongside, um, actually agreed with the Chinese government on. Like this was sort of a point of convergence. And so when I would read the newspapers, I was sort of surprised by how much this was in the newspapers. If you go through the Hong Kong press in the 1990s, there's copious front page stories on these Vietnamese um, in these camps. And I think it's because it sort of was such a, flashpoint for multiple issues in Hong Kong. So for example, Hong Kong people, as they are today, were often wondering, well, you know, why do the Vietnamese get to be refugees? Um, maybe we should get to be refugees. Um, you know, we're again going to be China in a few years. What happens to our status? So there was again this sort of anxiety about who is getting refugee status. There's also the question about the rule of law. What will the rule of law look like under Chinese authority versus under British authority? And again, these asylum cases sort of brought that to the forefront because in many ways it was about due process. And then you did have the British who wanted to, um, essentially they too saw it as sort of a late colonial problem. They wanted the camps closed before 1997. And I should say that the British had a particularly low record of resettlement. Um, Britain was very reluctant to take Vietnamese from Hong Kong. It took extremely low numbers of people even who had gotten refugee status into the UK. 
And in some ways, this very harsh punitive policy, which did in fact repatriate over 60,000 people in the 90s, the British and the Chinese and the Hong Kong government did feel like it largely succeeded on their terms, at least, because by 1997, there were only roughly two to 3,000 Vietnamese in Hong Kong territory. Um, and most of those individuals ended up staying in Hong Kong um, with sort of nebulous status. Um, and the word that was often used when I would talk to people was they were like the residue. And I always thought that sort of was evocative, the sense that like there was going to be some left over and how the Hong Kong government and China um, were willing to live with that, but sort of that negative connotation of sort of these people who were not going to get, you know, cared for in any other way. And it was... It was very interesting. So this idea of forced repatriations, can you describe what happened? Oh, it was really brutal. And um, I mean, I will say, and I'm going to explain this. I, as I was doing my research, I, I did in some ways become somewhat more sympathetic to the Hong Kong government. And what I mean when I say that is they were being pressured by both the British and the Chinese, and they were in many ways trying to figure out um, as you noted earlier, this question of like, well, how to be humanitarian, um, and yet these individuals were not getting resettled in the United States or elsewhere. So there was a lot of pressure, but the repatriations were really could be awful. Um, so some of them were forced, and there's a sort of dramatic story. The first one in 1988, where people were sort of quite literally like carried forcibly um, onto these airplanes. And there is both images and video evidence of the Hong Kong um, Correctional Service, like taking people forcibly and bringing them onto airplanes. Um, And it's just sort of chilling watching these images of being forced onto these airplanes. I should note that these forced repatriations with this sort of level of brutality um, were the minority. Uh, What happened more frequently was that the psychological pressure of the detention camps, and over time, you asked about the conditions, they got worse, they got more crowded, they got fewer services, less education, um, just, just increasingly more dire conditions within the camps. And in some ways, that was meant to pressure people to voluntarily get on those airplanes. And so... Many of the protests, and one thing that listeners should know is that the Vietnamese were not passive through this. The Vietnamese in the camps in Hong Kong actively protested these conditions. They had hunger strikes. They had protests. They had demonstrations. They used legal tactics. They used lobbying efforts. Vietnamese Americans and in Australia lobbied various political officials to improve these conditions. So there's an entire movement to improve their situation. Um, At the same time, the Hong Kong government wanted as many people as possible to voluntarily repatriate. And so the conditions get worse and people are told you have no hope. You're going to stay here forever. Um, You need to get on that airplane and go back to Vietnam. So there's a combination of physical, actual forced repatriations, which are then euphemistically renamed orderly repatriations or ORPs. Um, And then far more people got on the planes voluntarily. But I think we should put voluntarily um, in quotes or with a big asterisk because many of those voluntary repatriations were under a great deal of pressure. And so then in the end, how did the U.S. um, help to close the Hong Kong camps? 
So the U.S. is sort of as an interesting position in this. So the U.S., um, to be honest, wanted to have it both ways. And in some ways was the Hong Kong government was like, you guys are being hypocrites. And in many ways, that was accurate. So the United States was really opposed to all these repatriations and um, and largely because the United States did not want to sort of authorize sending people back to Vietnam. Vietnam was still and is still a communist country. The U.S. still in some ways resented um, the fact that the Vietnamese had won the war and they did not want to sort of authorize sending people back to Vietnam. On the other hand, the United States was not taking that many Vietnamese from Hong Kong. Um, again, they said these are largely people from northern Vietnam. These were not our South Vietnamese allies. And so they weren't resettling all that many people from Hong Kong. And so the Hong Kong government and the British were like, well, what are you to complain about this? And, and the Americans sort of did want to have it both ways. They didn't want to take Vietnamese in but they didn't want them to be forcibly sent back. And the Hong Kong, and there are many letters to the editor in the newspapers that say things like, well, you send Mexicans back all the time, or you send Haitians back all the time. Why are you complaining about our deportation policies? Um, and in the end, um, Vietnamese Americans do a lot of lobbying in Congress. And I think it's really important to note that level of activism um, among the Vietnamese American community. And Congress and the State Department are both involved, and they're not able to change the policy overall. Um, but they do, um, they essentially create a framework so that people who go back to Vietnam voluntarily, um, some, not all, but some of them have the opportunity to apply for essentially asylum and resettlement in the United States directly from within Vietnam. And that was called the Rover Program. And it was a way to try to encourage people to go back to Vietnam and tell them that they would have another chance of an interview where they might get to be resettled in the United States. Um, and some people do take advantage of that program, but it's definitely not everyone who is repatriated. And now Hong Kong provides quite an interesting contrast in terms of the forced and so-called voluntary repatriations to the Philippines. Um, you write that there was only in the, I think from Palawan, a single forced repatriation in 1996. Can you talk about the differences in policies or perhaps the reasons for this? No, absolutely. And the Philippines um, is a fascinating sort of counterpoint. So thank you for bringing it up. So listeners should know that this is all sort of happening in the, from the mid-70s to the early 90s, mid-90s. And the Philippine government in the 1980s was under um, the, the head of state was um, Marcos, who had an authoritarian government, um, but one that was capitalist and very closely allied to the United States. And during the Marcos years, um, Marcos actually offers up the Philippines as a site for refugee processing. He also doesn't want refugees to stay in the Philippines, um, but he, I think, sees an opening for his government. The Marcos government is being criticized for human rights violations in the United States um, and on the world stage, again, largely because of activism of Filipinos in the diaspora and Filipinos in the Philippines. And so Marcos in some ways says, look, we'll host these refugees and demonstrate that the Philippines is a humanitarian country. And I think that 
the, there is a lot to be said for the um, the people who worked in the camps um, were extremely, I think, um, expert, and the the camp was far less punitive um, than the camps in the United States. But I also think the government was really positioning itself um, in a very different way. So the largest camp in the Philippines was quite different. It was not a first asylum camp where people were sort of just showing up and declaring refugee status or asylum, but it was instead a point of transit where people who already had refugee status would go for six months and then go on to the United States. In addition, the Philippines did have, in general, a more generous policy And that was, I think, somewhat attributable to the role of the Catholic Church in the Philippines. The Philippines um, is a majority Catholic country. The Catholic Church, a strong anti-communist, had strongly opposed um, sort of, you know, the communist state in Vietnam, was very sympathetic to the Vietnamese coming in. Um, And I do think that that role of the Catholic Church Um, played an important role in the Philippines. I'd also say the numbers of people who landed in the Philippines was much smaller, both overall and in proportion to the Philippines population. So in some ways, I think the the political concern was much less. There was much less local anger at the incoming Vietnamese in the Philippines than there was in, say, Hong Kong. And the camps were open in the Philippines, unlike the situation in Hong Kong. Yeah. The one you're talking about is in Palawan. Mm-hmm. Um, and that camp, which um, for people, if you are unfamiliar, it is sort of on the western side of the Philippines. It's a long island, sort of on the outer edge of the archipelago. And that was an open camp. And again, the Vietnamese, it has smaller numbers of people. Um, and it was seen, into, I think, largely in a sort of more peripheral area of the Philippines, But it was far less um, stark than the camps in Hong Kong or Malaysia. Many of the Vietnamese there got jobs or sort of sold noodles um, and had far greater freedom. At the same time, I would say that they did recognize that they um, did not have full control over their mobility. And so I think it's worth noting that there were also protests in those camps. I remember letters from um, that I found in the archives from someone's sister saying that how miserable her sister was in Palawan, how poor the conditions were. And she was saying, look, and this was a, quote, good camp. This was a camp that um, had greater levels of mobility. Um, but you are correct that in Palawan, there was far more... Um, maneuverability than there were in the camps in Malaysia or Hong Kong. And just picking up again on this point um, of the involvement of the Catholic Church, one of the really interesting stories you, um, one of the characters you drill in on in the book is this lady called Sister Pascal um, who reimagined this kind of Vietnamese-Filipino solidarity. It does seem quite a contrast to, you know, some of the public response at least to um, Vietnamese refugees in Hong Kong. Can you talk about this this sort of reimagining of Vietnamese and Filipino solidarity? Yeah, no, Sister Pascal is a remarkable woman. I've not had the chance to meet her, um, but she was a, a Vietnamese woman. She is a nun, and she decided to study or to do her work in the Philippines in the seventies while the war was still going on in Vietnam. And it's because she wanted to continue doing her mission um, 
in a country in Southeast Asia. And while she was there, South Vietnam collapsed. And she decided that she was going to help support Vietnamese refugees who were coming into the Philippines, um, along with Vietnamese women um, who had married Filipino men during the war. And she becomes the most vocal um, sort of advocate for Vietnamese in the Philippines. And I just think she was a force of nature. Everyone I spoke to would sort of speak of her in this um, sort of dramatic sort of way about sort of how um, successful she was in pushing her cause. And she really advocated for better conditions in the camp. She advocated a lot for self-help in the camps and self-government in the camps um, so that the Vietnamese would maintain the camps themselves and have some level of autonomy and government. So sort of like local policing or local sort of um, organization within the camps. And in the end, she also becomes a very vocal against the repatriations in the Philippines. And she is very successful in countering the sort of push for forced patriations. Um, and she does this through her um, alliance. I mean, she's a nun, so she's very much part of the Catholic Church, but she also works with Philippine Filipinos who are part of the Catholic hierarchy and lobbies for the Vietnamese to not be forcibly repatriated. And she's remarkably successful. And I think it's because in some ways her sheer personality, but also her political acumen of how to negotiate um, with Filipino politicians and the Filipino bishops. And elsewhere in the Philippines, there was this idea of uh, the happy refugees. This sort of really struck me because it's not, necessarily what you associate with um, being a refugee. Can you talk about this idea of the model camp in the Philippines? Sure. So that's a little bit different. So again, just for listeners to sort of put themselves in the right position. What happens in 1979 is that Southeast Asian countries and the UNHCR say, look, everyone who shows up in Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, if you're Vietnamese, you can be a refugee. And, but they don't, Malaysia doesn't want those people to stay in Malaysia. And Hong Kong doesn't want those people to stay in Hong Kong. And so the Philippines says, we're going to have this processing camp so that people can get out of Malaysia faster. People can get out of Hong Kong faster. And this is when I was talking about Marcos in some ways setting up this camp to demonstrate the Philippines' sort of generosity, humanitarian spirit. Imelda Marcos actually becomes the leader of this camp, the titular, you know, um, leader of the camp, although it's run by a military general, but it's set up as a transit camp. And the idea is that people would go from, say, Malaysia, okay, you're a refugee, it's 1979, we're not screening people yet, then we're going to send you to the Philippines for six months, and then you're going to be resettled, most people in the United States, small numbers going to Germany and Norway. And so the, this large camp in the Philippines that's set up as this transit center is very different than the camp I talked about in Palawan or the camp in Hong Kong, which are people who are sort of showing up and waiting. People going to this camp in the Philippines um, are going and waiting, but they know that they're on their way to resettlement. They're on their way, most of them, to the United States. And during that six months, they would get six months English training and six months of cultural orientation. Um, 
which I think was somewhat of a mixed bag, but there was a six month training program. And so the UNHCR and the Philippines and the Americans in some ways represent this group of Vietnamese as being, quote, those happy refugees um, because they are on their way to their resettlement. They are only having to wait for six months at this point. And that is the fundamental difference. Um, my sense is most of these individuals would have liked to have just gotten to the United States or Germany or Norway. Um, I don't think many of them thought there was a great value in their six-month sojourn in the Philippines. Many of them in, you know, liked their English teachers or had nice relationships with some of the people they met there. But in many ways, um, this was just like one more stop along the way. And they sort of, you know, most of the, most of it, it was, you know, it was they were fine. They had their English classes or they, you know, did their cultural orientation and they went on. But that's where that idea comes from. And the idea of it being a model camp is that the UNHCR, and there's a lot of resources put in there. And so it's set up to be less punitive than, say, the camps I was speaking about earlier in Hong Kong. Um, there's still, you know, a border and, um, there's still some crowding, but it was sort of a very sort of large, small city, you know, often up to 20,000, 30,000 people there at a time. And so you describe, um, some of the, the refugees landing in this sort of like limbo zone for six months. Some of them you mentioned had flee, had been fleeing Malaysia as one example, um, Turning now to the, what was going on in Malaysia, you describe it in the book as a policy of to shoot or to shoe. Um, and coming back to 1975 and to 1979 again, can you describe what you mean here? Yeah, no, absolutely. So again, and we're moving around chronologically a bit, so I hope listeners um, are going to follow. We're going to go back in time to 1978. Um, and there's a way in which um, 1975 was the end of the war. And Vietnamese really don't leave in large numbers again until the 1978, 79. This is due to internal changes in Vietnam, as I said, different crackdowns. Um, there's also um, military actions and tensions with China and Cambodia. And so you get a large exodus, particularly of Chinese Vietnamese in 1978, 1979. And they go largely to Malaysia. It's just closest from South Vietnam. So if you're on a boat, the closest sort of point is either to Thailand or to Malaysia. And the Malaysian government has, again, a somewhat hostile policy, although they also take in tens of thousands of people. So people start showing up in Malaysia in large numbers, and the Malaysian government does, in fact, put tens of thousands of people into refugee camps. Um, these are somewhat more like the camps I was describing in Hong Kong. They're crowded. They're very dense. Some of them are on this island called Palau Bidong. Um, and they're really in extremely tight, tight quarters. And the Malaysian government really doesn't want all these people showing up. They're saying this is going to be a problem. Are these people ever going to leave? Who are they? You know, we don't know who they are. Maybe they're even coming to infiltrate and bring communism to Malaysia. And so the Malaysian government begins a policy where they're pushing boats back to sea. So if you, your boat doesn't land, they're sort of pushing that boat on most likely to Indonesia. But obviously many of these individuals um, and boats might sink or people might die at sea. And so this becomes again, a humanitarian crisis. And the quote that you mentioned is um, from Mahathir, Muhammad Mahathir, who's long-term um, leader of Malaysia, most dominant 
Malaysian figure of the late 20th century. And he makes this really dramatic quote where he basically says, you know, we're already blamed for doing all these horrible things. We might as well shoot people. And then this sort of gets misinterpreted or requoted to saying that, you know, the Malaysians are going to start shooting on sight, uh, the Vietnamese boats coming to shore. And then the Malaysian government comes and says, no, 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 we didn't say that. We meant we're going to shoo the boats away. We're not going to shoot people. Um, and really, this is about Malaysia's desire, I think, to not be a refugee camp for the United States. The Malaysian government wants to, again, discourage Vietnamese from coming, but they're also trying to create a crisis so that the larger international community will come up with an agreement so that the Vietnamese will not be staying in Malaysia. Um, and so again, Malaysia's policy, I wanna be clear, was very, um, I think, contradictory in a way. On the one hand, they have this really harsh policy where boats are actually shooed away. And there are examples of um, multiple in the book of people being sort of sent away um, at the risk of drowning and extremely harsh. But Malaysia also took in tens of thousands of people in very short order in 1978 and 1979. And the Malaysian Red Crescent Society provided a great deal of support for the thousands of Vietnamese who Malaysia did provide asylum for during that time. So both were happening at the same time. And so the Malaysian government also, you write, began to question the politics of humanitarianism in the late 1970s. Can you explain this? Because, it, as you say, there were some contradictions, not just in the Malaysian policy, but seemingly what was going on in this whole international situation in relation to the Vietnamese refugees. No, I think it's a good point. So first of all, again, for listeners, humanitarianism is a nebulous term, right? Or there's a way in which, what does it really mean? We, we all are human. So what does it mean to be humanitarian? But it generally imagines like a sort of base level of care that you're going to provide first asylum, that you're going to provide shelter and food um, and sort of this basic set of needs. Um, but I think Malaysia's anger about this and desire to redefine the term was about sort of response to long-term European colonialism. The term humanitarian has often been tied to sort of European countries who are going to be rescuing, particularly, say, Christian minorities, if we think about during the Ottoman Empire, or this idea of um, sort of civilizing care that European countries present, present themselves as being humanitarian, and often countries in the so-called developing world as not being humanitarian. And Malaysia was very angry about this. And the government tries to turn this on its head to say that, no, actually, like we are being humanitarian. Britain, the United States, you're not taking these people. Why should we have to be humanitarian on your terms? I think this term humanitarian is, again, it changes over time. When I would look at the Hong Kong documents, I was always struck by um, these civil servants, British and Chinese, who would say, we can't be like Malaysia. We can't push people off because we have to be humanitarian. Um, we can't ruin our reputations on the world stage um, because we're British, right? So you could see that contradiction or that debate being played out. And as I think about it in our own moment, and I'm almost nostalgic for Malaysia and Hong Kong, um, trying to think about how to appear the most humanitarian. In our own moment, I feel that there's no longer this sort of international pressure to even maintain a humanitarian pretense. 
So again, I'm in the United States. And so, you know, whether it's the United States putting asylum seekers quite literally in jails or sending them back to Mexico or taking record low numbers numbers of refugees, um, there's not even a pretense of trying to claim humanitarianism on any level. Um, but I think you can see there the different ways in which these governments um, are trying to claim humanitarianism for themselves. And so then where would you argue that the responsibility for the humanitarian crisis lay? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I mean, to be honest, it really was complicated. I mean, the Vietnamese government, which I've talked about less, um, is in many ways you know, helping or sort of facilitating many of these large groups of Vietnamese leaving in the late 1970s. Um, and one of the things that I do think we might want to turn to looking at these um, moments in 1979 and 1989 is that there were regional conferences and solutions. And so for all of the problems of that I've been talking about, in 1979 and then again in 1989, you have the coming together of the countries that were hosting the refugees or the asylum seekers, the countries that were resettling the Vietnamese, um, donor countries that were providing money to the UNHCR, the UNHCR and Vietnam and the United States. And they really um, were trying to come up with frameworks. And these, as I noted with the Hong Kong, these are imperfect. And a lot of people individually um, are harmed in the process. But you did have, I think, pressure and an impulse for cooperative regional agreements that I do not see in our present moment. That's interesting. And so what I want to turn to a little bit is in terms of these agreements, um, going back to a point you brought up at the outset, in terms of um, agreements between UNHCR and the US in Guam, um, can you just give just for listeners to give a little bit um, more specific understanding of what kind of negotiations went on there. Oh, goodness. Okay, so we're going back in time again. Uh, Sorry. 1975. So in some ways, for for listeners, we've almost gone backwards, and we're now at the beginning of the story. Um, And so, again, in 1975, when the fall of Saigon, most of us have an image, at least I always did, of the helicopter on the rooftop about to leave and sort of the, it's about in some ways the American betrayal, failure of supporting the South Vietnamese government. And then we have a large Vietnamese community in Orange County um, in the United States or in Virginia or in Texas. And the point is that the helicopter does not fly from Saigon to California, right? Um, There's an interim point. And that interim point was Guam. And in 1975, the United States brings the majority of Vietnamese to Guam before they're brought to the United States. And so Guam, again, people were there for anywhere from two weeks to two to three months, but mostly it was a transit point for Vietnamese going from Guam to the United States in May, June of 1975. But there was a very small group of Vietnamese, roughly 2,000 people, who said, wait a second, I didn't mean to get here. I want to go back to Vietnam, and they don't want to go to the United States. And this leads to a huge crisis for the United States and the UNHCR 
about what to do with this population of Vietnamese who don't want to be resettled in the United States. And the UNHCR at this time, as a neutral body, tries to negotiate with the Vietnamese government for these individuals to return. And the Vietnamese government refuses to negotiate or to give on this point because they're very afraid that the Vietnamese return might be CIA agents or sort of subversive people who the U.S. is sending back. Um, and so the UNHCR is trying to broker that, but um, in the end is unable to. And so I just want to link it all together. So from 1975, we've sort of worked, as you say, we've worked backwards. So going back to 1975 through the 70s, 80s to 1997 in Hong Kong and then more recently, there is still some ongoing significance, you know, um, and you said before that, you know, looking back, you almost lament now in the present day this seemingly lack of humanitarianism mm -hmm. and there's not even a pretense of it anymore. Um, and, in fact, you mentioned earlier that, you know, under Trump, Vietnamese Americans have actually become targets for deportation, um, notwithstanding that, you know, many of them um, are in the US as a result of, you know, the war in the 70s. Can you just link this all together and talk about the significance in the present day of what happened then and now? Absolutely. I mean, I... When I was finishing this book um, at a moment where the United States has the most anti-refugee policies it's had, you know, since at least the 1930s, right, um, that there's a way in which the United States um, no longer even has the pretense of providing support for refugees and asylum seekers. And... So the stories that you're mentioning, they're about, I, this is how I end the book, which is that today the Trump administration is in fact targeting Vietnamese who might have come in the 80s or early 90s um, and deporting them. And these are individuals who might have come in the 1980s or early 90s through one of these refugee programs. And then many of them might have come into contact with the law in some way. Maybe they were drunk driving. Maybe they were in a fight. Um, you know, a large number of people get in, you know, have infractions with the law in multiple ways. And these individuals then could not become U.S. citizens. They could never naturalize or become citizens. But because of the U.S. agreements with Vietnam, they did not think that they would be deported. There was an agreement during the Obama years that essentially said this group that came in the 80s and 90s, even though if they were from, say, Japan, they would have been deported. But because of their special status and because of the relationship with Vietnamese um, migrants, the United States will not deport this group of people. And so they thought they were protected. And... That was not the case. And during the Trump administration, several of these Vietnamese individuals who came originally through these programs because they were um, refugees um, have been deported back to Vietnam. And it's just in some ways shocking. Um, these are individuals who've been living in the United States for 30 or 40 years. Many of them uh, no longer have legal problems. They've gotten remarried. They have jobs. They have families in the United States. And it just seems a cruel um, and nasty policy to be targeting these individuals and deporting them. Um, 
Again, this has created activism among the Asian American community in the United States. There's a group called CROC, Southeast Asian, I think, Research Center. I might be getting the acronym a little bit off. Um, but they have been mobilizing and act- activists writing about this. Um, but the deportation machine in the United States sort of continues to operate. And these individuals who came um, in the 80s and 90s have found themselves deported back to Vietnam. Sometimes they never even were there. Many of these individuals were born in refugee camps. So some of them had never even been to Vietnam. It Honestly, it just seems so shocking. Um, but so like so important to know about um so just on that note jana i've taken up a lot of your time i'm just wondering before you go what are you working on now oh thanks so much um so one is i um in some ways i'm just wrapping up some projects related to this book i am actually hoping to write two more short essays about hong kong and vietnamese in hong kong as it relates to questions of human rights Um, And then in addition, I'm starting a new book project on thinking about how the U.S. military handled sexual assault um, with the onset of the all-volunteer force in 1973. So there's a way in which um, I'm interested in thinking about social histories of the military and I'm interested in when the women, when women are included in the all-volunteer force in the 70s, um, how does the military have to adapt and change how it handles issues related to sexual assault and harassment? Those projects sound really interesting and really diverse. Um, I'll certainly like I'll certainly like check them out because honestly, um, in camps was just such a gripping read, and it was so important, like for understanding, you know, the world as it is today. I think like the refugee situation, um, worldwide policies, and I think your new work sounds really very fascinating also. Well, thank you so much, Jane. I really appreciate your time and thank you for speaking with me today. Well, no, Jana, thank you so much. Um, I've really enjoyed speaking to you. Um, Once again, I'm Jane Richards and today I've been speaking with Jana Lipman about her new book, In Camps, Vietnamese Refugees, Asylum Seekers and Repatriates, published by the University of California Press earlier this year. You've been listening to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. Goodbye.